My biggest fear is being locked in an elevator, and if you know me very well, then you know that I, uh, I get super panicked when I get on elevators, and uh, since I try to be rational about my fears, I try to conquer it by bringing food and water with me when I take an elevator ride. It doesn't matter how big of an elevator ride, because I figure if I get locked in, the real fear is that I'll starve to death or uh, dehydrate myself to death. And so uh, I'm, I'm super, super scared of getting in elevators. And I don't know why. I've never been locked in one. And the only place I can trace it to is actually being locked in a bathroom in Minneapolis. And, uh, and then somehow that feeling of being locked in uh, kind of transported itself to elevators. And so I'm really, really panicked. And uh, the, the time that I thought I got locked in uh, was... Right after I had proposed to Bryn, and we were in Denver when I proposed, it was great, asked me the story sometime, and uh, I took her to the airport because I was out there for class, and she had come in and stayed with some family friends, and so I took her to the airport to fly back home and uh, dropped her off and got in an elevator and pushed the button and then after like 20 seconds, I realized that nothing had happened, and and I, I like instant, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but like instantly you're sweaty and I could feel it in my stomach and I like, there was no tomorrow, like I was in a war. I started slamming the open door button and it immediately opened. There was, it was, and I hadn't moved at all and apparently the button wasn't working or something, but I took the stairs to my car and was done with that elevator forever. But it's like this real Fear. It's like it's like uh, almost a a fear that that is causing problems at this point. A phobia, I guess, uh, because it, it makes me never want to visit New York because I figure I'll have to get on an elevator to do anything cool there. And it makes me not want to go to the Portland City Grill because you want to show up there hungry anyway, and I don't want to get on an elevator hungry. And so it's like a catch twenty two. And and so it's like this polarizing fear. It makes me not do things and. On a deeper level, uh, it seems that really, I think the fear of all of us is having doors closed that we can't open. And uh, it seems like when you, when you think deeply about the, the stuff that you kind of get scared of, the things that you worry about on a daily basis, besides like the, the stupid irrational phobias, it, it really all kind of comes down to Having a door closed, some type of door that, that we can't open. It seems like in our current culture, uh, we, we want access to whatever we want to have access to. We want to be able to do whatever we want. And it really, maybe more than any culture in the history of the world, are bothered when, when we don't have a door that is open to us, when somebody tells us we can't do something, or when we are rejected or when we lose an opportunity, uh, it seems like we just have become this society where, where we want everything to be available to us. It doesn't mean we want to do everything, but we think everything should be available to us. And we cry things like not fair or this is, this is prejudice or this shouldn't be the case whenever something isn't available to us. And sometimes it's probably right for us to cry foul and sometimes it's not. But we expect to be able to get whatever we want and pretty much whenever we want to get it. Um, 
there's this hashtag on Twitter that you've probably heard, and it's first world problems. Maybe you've tweeted things with first world problems attached to it. And it's basically these things to describe problems that we in the first world, non-third world countries, we only would complain about. And so I Googled because as I was thinking about like how we don't like, you know, not to have whatever we want whenever we want it. And, and, and I Googled the best of them, and I found some that I think really apply just because it shows us like how how we've become as Americans where if if we can't have something then we're frustrated about it and we feel the need to tweet about it um so like this one and and picture hashtag first world problems and if you don't know what hashtags do it's like a a a way of first of all cataloging this is just a little explanation for you older people in our church. Uh, it's a way of cataloging things that you put onto certain websites. That's what a hashtag does. It's the number sign. I'm seeing eyeballs on some of you and it's like, I have no idea what a hashtag even is. It's the little number sign you see sometimes uh, on things on the internet. And, and it categorizes, but it also is a way of, of trying to make a funny, make a joke, you know? And, and so people will put hashtags connected to their statements in order to make other people laugh. And so here, here, again, hopefully that explanation was good enough. Google it when you get home. Um, do I need to explain what Googling something is? <laughs> um, the cleaner didn't turn up at my flat last week. Hope she comes soon. The bin is almost full. First world problems. Everyone has a Beamer, Lexus, Mercedes, or Range Rover staring me down in my Jeep because they know that I don't belong. I have a paper cut on my iPad finger. Every tweet is agony, but I persist bravely. That's a good one. <laughs> Really sick and tired of this place using too much orange zest in my brunch mimosa. I can't believe I bought a toaster with no bagel setting. Like, seriously. And and that's who we've become as Americans. Like, where any door that isn't open to us, we think that something has has gone wrong. Where we, We actually feel like we have been wronged in some ways. And what has happened, and the sad part is that we, we do whatever we can to make sure that every door stays open to us, sometimes sacrificing what we believe in and sacrificing what our morality is. And for those of us who are Christians, really sacrificing obedience to Jesus. It really seems that we do whatever it takes to make sure that every door is open to us. The door to popularity, the door to riches, the door to happiness, the door to everything needs to stay open to us. And we are willing to compromise in order to keep those doors open. And Jesus, as he writes to this church in Philadelphia, encourages them because they are not this way. They are, in fact, opposite of what we see in much of, of America and much of American Christianity. This is a letter written to, or a section of the letter of Revelation, written to a church in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, as we'll, we will see in a moment, has captured the hearts and the imaginations of the church forever and ever because this church, more than any of the others that are written to in the Bible, were unwilling to compromise even when, and that's what we'll see today, doors were slammed in their face. 
They were unwilling to give in or to compromise or to sleep or to avoid doing what was right in order to keep doors, whatever doors were important to them, open in the world. They said, you can slam every door in my face, but we, we will serve Jesus. And so every church in the history of church, pretty much, has wanted to be like this church in Philadelphia. And so let's look at it today. This is how Jesus starts the words to this church. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Let me just tell you a little bit about Philadelphia. It was a city of some importance, and it was founded in the second century BC by Attalus, king of Pergamum, and he named it in honor of his predecessor, Umanus Philadelphus. And I've always thought that it was connected to the Greek word that means brotherly love, and that's why we say Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Uh, However, it was actually named after this guy named Philadelphus. It was strategically located in a fertile fertile river valley on the main road from Sardis to Laodicea. And you can see as we're moving through these churches, here's number six. And so the letter continues to pass. And we studied Sardis last week and Laodicea next week. And right here in the middle of it is Philadelphia. And the situation here seems to be similar to that in Smyrna where there's a large Jewish population who are persecuting the churches that are there. But here's the really, really important part about this church and this city that existed a couple thousand years ago. Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say to these people. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say you're doing this wrong or you're compromising or you're sleeping or you need to fix this sin or you've bought into this false teaching or allowed these people to exist within your church. He only says good things to them and this is what he says. He begins by identifying himself. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. Now the first part of this is that Jesus identifies himself as both holy and true. In Isaiah 40, 25, we we read this, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. The Holy One was a term to describe the God of the universe. And this passage seems to remind us that Jesus is God who came in human form. The idea of holiness is it comes from a compound word and it means to have veneration and awe. And then there's another word that goes into it, meaning reverence, and the object of it, and therefore it is what belongs to the same and denotes holy and sacred, as that could not be sacred which was polluted. Purity becomes part of the meaning. It is which is sacred, and that only can be sacred which is not unclean. Do you see kind of the two? It's sacredness, set-apartness, holiness is how we would say it in the church today, and this idea of, of not being polluted, of being pure and perfect and holy, we would say that. And holiness is one of those words, and I, I, uh, I try not to use them too often when I'm preaching and when we are doing things for church, but it's like one of those Christian words, which I'm convinced like Christians sing it and hear it and they use it. I would like to be more holy. And they never stop for one minute to like actually consider what that word might mean. And so now you know a little bit, it, it simply means like, like set apart and pure. And so when it's applied to Jesus, there's a reference to him as God, but it's saying, look, this, this Jesus is perfect. He never committed a sin. He's never done anything wrong. And he is so set apart, so different from humanity that he is to be worshiped and awed and, and praised and to be seen as something other than a regular guy. This holiness of Jesus is the reason that, that we in this church 
think so strongly against people who say, yeah, I think Jesus was a great guy, a great teacher. He was a great revolutionary person. He was this cool person that loved everybody. But they leave off the part where he is to be worshiped and praised and honored and glorified and seen as the God of the universe who came down to earth to save sinners. It's the holiness of Jesus that sets him apart. There's been lots of great teachers. There's been lots of people who have moved culture forward. There's been lots of people who loved and showed acceptance and really taught others to love and show acceptance and started good movements that helped people and healed people. But only Jesus is holy in his perfection and his set-apartness, his otherworldliness, really, his spiritual uh, nature that existed within him. And so we see Jesus as holy and we see him as true. He's the reason we know truth. I mean, he's the reason we know about God. He's the reason that we understand scripture. He is truth. But it also says, and this is kind of the more key part of this passage, that he holds the key of David. This is a reference to the idea in the Old Testament where a person would have complete control of the city and of the temple because they had the keys to it. Now, it's a little bit more difficult for us to understand today because you can go to Fry's right now and you can have your key duplicated and it's not a big deal. But when keys were, were hard to cut and somebody, some guy was doing it by hand and chiseling it out, having a key was a big deal. And only one person would have the key to the temple and to the palace. And this guy would have been in a very high and powerful position. We read about one of these guys in the Old Testament, Eliakim. And and that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and and to the people of Judah I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offsprings and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. God's like talking about this guy who will come, who will put it in a position, and the position is to have the key. And I mean, just listen to that language. It's like this glorified position in the community. And Jesus is saying like, ultimately, I have that same type of power, that same position for the entire world, for everything that you know, and especially the spiritual stuff that you know. We'll get back to why that's important in a second. The other part that's really important is that he connects it here to David. And we know that David was like the, the king in Israel's history. If you were to go even to a Jewish person today and say, what was like the best era in your history? They would still point to David because he was so powerful and so godly and, and he ruled so well and so kindly and the kingdom expanded and really became the main kingdom on earth under his Reign. And it was believed that somebody would come in his lineage and would reign forever on his throne. This is what we read in Luke 20, 41 through 44. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? 
Jesus like offers a little riddle. I mean, it's this riddle where he's like, how could David say to his son, Lord, that doesn't make sense. People don't call their children Lord and they don't show them that type of respect. And the the key answer to it is that Jesus came down from heaven where he has always existed. And so in, in the word David, in referencing the key of David, we see that Jesus is the king of the universe who will reign forever and ever, and he's in the lineage of David. And then he says, what he, can op- what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is the proverbial door, if you will. It's talking about Jesus offering opportunity offering uh, an ability to do the things that either we want to do or that he wants us to do. And so Jesus ultimately is in control whether or not you can or you can't do something. And he has something specific in mind, and we'll need to continue to see that. Verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, there's a couple things here. First of all, I just want to point out that Jesus says that he knows their deeds. In the church that we studied last week, he said the exact same thing. But when he said it to the church that we studied last week, he didn't mean it as a compliment. He was telling him, I know your deeds. You're not living for me. You're not doing the things that you ought to be doing. You look just like the rest of the culture. You're not on a mission for me. You're not trying to lead every person to Jesus and every person closer to Jesus. You're simply going through the motions. You've lost your passion and and your deeds are no good to me. But here when he says it to this church in Philadelphia, it's a compliment. And it reminds us of this, that Jesus knows everything that we do. He knows the efforts that we make or the efforts that we don't make. He knows when we are working hard to serve him and he knows when we aren't working hard to serve him. He knows when we're being obedient to him and when we're not being obedient to him. And I just want to ask this question. I just want to pause there for a second and just ask this very simple question. Are you happy that Jesus knows your deeds Or are you sad that Jesus knows your deeds? Does it excite you that Jesus knows your deeds? Or does it worry you that Jesus knows your deeds? If you're like, man, it it makes me happy. It's good. I'm glad that he knows the work that I'm doing. Then keep striving. Keep moving forward. Be encouraged by that. Don't be discouraged by the struggle that is the work that you're doing for Jesus. And sometimes, and, and, and I think the majority of people in our church know this, like sometimes it's hard to keep serving Jesus. It's hard to get out of bed on Sunday morning. It's hard to talk about him at work. It's hard to be obedient to him when, when everyone around you is not doing it. And that, that's difficult to do. And, and, and if you're doing it and you're striving for that and you're trying to do your best for him, then hey, Jesus knows your deed and it's good and it's not in vain he's going to reward you for it someday but if you're on the opposite side and you're just like well I never try to live for Jesus and when it's hard I don't live for Jesus and there's no way that I'm serving the church because I just I have other things going on and and I don't care about the mission of leading people to Christ it's not a big deal to me then then I would offer this Jesus knows your deeds and you need to repent and you need to make a change now here's the other really main part of this. It says that he has placed an open door before them that no one can shut. 
The way that's often used is probably incorrect, and it's often used, and this would be a fun sermon to preach, but this isn't the passage for it, that, that Jesus has placed open this missionary door before them, and that he has made culture ready to receive this church and, to, and, to, and for people to come to him, and that he's really going to use this church in extremely mighty and powerful ways. That would be a really cool sermon to preach, and that is how it's often understood and often taught because pastors sometimes don't do much research. They just kind of get up, and, and that sounds good, and so let's go with it. But what it actually means is probably more important for our lives, even though it's not as exciting and it's, you know, there's, it's not like a rah-rah speech. It actually probably means that he has opened up a door to God, that he has opened up a door so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could have help from God, so that ultimately we could spend eternity with God in heaven where there will be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more suffering. You see, the door that Jesus seemingly is talking about opening here is not the door to missionary stuff. It's actually the door to everything that he offered by dying on the cross. Joy and peace and forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and access to the God in heaven. For eternity. Now, this is a big deal to these people because they are having literal doors closed to them. You see, they were being shut out of the synagogue. And we've talked about the trade guilds in this series, and the trade guilds were very important for the people living in Asia Minor at the time. And it was like uh, it was like a union, but it was also like family, and it was like where you had your parties, and it was like a social club. It was everything about your life was kind of wrapped up in these trade guilds. But for Jewish people, that same mindset, that same kind of cultural structure existed within the synagogue. The synagogue was a place of worship, but it was also like your social hub and where you had friends and where you hung out and where you got food sometimes. And it's where you really did everything that you do. I mean, go back and just think about living a couple of thousand years ago. We have so many options. Like, what are you doing Friday night? And you think, well, I don't know what I want to do on Friday night. Well, you go back before modern technology and before modern archaeology, and I mean, there's not a lot of choices. The Jewish people are like, well, I'm going to the synagogue. It's where I'm going to see my family, and that's where I'm going to hang out with my friends, and we're going to play games, and hopefully not, but we're going to play games, and and that's what we're going to do. This is a Friday night, and this is a Sunday morning, and this this is my church, and this is my hangout, and this is everything to me. And those doors were literally being shut to the people who would become Christians. And we've talked about this throughout the series, but it's worth saying again, the Jewish people at the time had a real problem with Christians. And it makes total sense as as I process this week. I mean, it makes total sense because just picture this. Picture Christianity, and and if you're a Christian, you subscribe to Christianity, and you love Jesus, and you you sing about it, and you come to church because of it, and and you're really passionate about it, I hope, and, and your relationship with Jesus. Now, let's say somebody comes along, and we know groups like this, and they say, hey, Let me totally reinterpret this whole Christianity thing for you. And let me tell you the real way that it is supposed to be seen and viewed and interacted with. And it's radically different than what you had seen and what you had believed and what you had thought for all the years that you've been been a Christian. You'd be kind of angry, right? I mean, you would like tell 
Mormon jokes about those people and you would be frustrated by those people and you would be bothered by those people. Well, this is how the Jews viewed Christianity. They were like, we've had this religion for, for thousands of years. And now you people are saying that our religion has taken in, in their minds a turn to the left and, and that we are wrong and that we're not seeing our faith correctly, the Jewish faith. You'd be kind of frustrated. You'd be kind of angry. And the Christians at the time were going, hey, <laughs> we didn't take a left turn Everything in our faith has always pointed towards Jesus the whole time. I mean, all the way back to the book of Genesis, it pointed to Jesus, and you people have missed the boat. His name was Jesus. And there's serious tension. But guess who has all the power in this situation? The Jews. They control the synagogue. They control the relationship the Jewish people had with the Romans, which is a big deal, because that meant you didn't have to worship other emperors. And they're looking at these Christians, and in this city, they're saying, door closed. You're no longer a part of us. You're not getting into our synagogue, and we're not going to pretend that you're one of us when the Romans ask us. And so you are going to be persecuted for not worshiping their emperors and their false gods, the Greek gods that we know today. Now you're a Christian, and you're saying, wow, every door has been closed to me. I mean, think about the doors that we value in our life today, the door to wealth. I mean, we all want, it's written like in our constitution, our declaration of independence, actually. Um, it's written in our declaration of independence that we have the right to have the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of happiness. And what if these doors, what if somebody said, you no longer have a right to be happy? You're like, I do too. That is my Right. And the door of wealth is a part of that. I mean, if somebody said, you can no longer make money. Here in America, that would be like, no way. That is not how this country is run. You cannot tell me that. What about like the door of friendship? If people just think about when those doors have been slammed to you. I don't want to be your friend anymore. That's like the meanest thing that a kid can say to another kid, right? Like if you've ever had that moment, it really hurt. I don't want to be your friend anymore. And like when that door is closed, it really is difficult and it's scary. Or the door of being liked, if somebody's just like, slam, I don't like you and I don't really care what you do, I'm done with you because of who you are as a person, I'm done with you and that door closes. Something that you like to do or consider a fun activity, like what if no longer, you just couldn't do it, it was done, it was, it was over for you, the door had been slammed shut. What if somebody for you, unmarried people, just, you know, like that door closes with the person you want to marry. That hurts, right? And, and, and so these doors that close in our lives are very, very difficult. And these people who are Christians living in Philadelphia had had like the majority of, of the doors that we value even today shut to them. I mean, you can't, you can't come buy food here. You can't have this job. You can't hang out with these people you can't marry that girl because you're not one of us anymore. The synagogue doors are literally and figuratively shut to you. Jesus looks down and, and he says to these people, I have placed before you an open door that nobody can shut. I mean, just think of the discouragement and the pain and the suffering from all those closed doors and then you get a letter from Jesus. And it's like, I know, I know how many things have been shut off for you. But I want you to know 
that the ultimate door has been opened to you through Christianity. The door to love and acceptance and forgiveness and a relationship with God and an eternity in heaven where you don't have to worry about death or pain or suffering or hurt or anything that you worry about right now. And this is what makes being a Christian worth it. There's far too much preaching today that, that makes it sound like being a Christian is great because it's going to like make you more prosperous or give you more friends or simply make you more whole in a psychological sense. Those things can be true probably, but they're not always. Christianity is awesome because when every door slams in your face, the door to God is still open through the blood and death of Jesus. The truth is, if you were living out your Christianity correctly, if you were being obedient to Jesus, then probably you should have a bunch of doors slammed in your face, all the while remembering that the ultimate door is open. We have it so backwards. I mean, just even in our thinking who are Christians and love Jesus, it's so backwards. We think like about all these doors that ultimately don't matter, but we're so flippant about the door that is access to God, the most important door where we don't have to spend eternity in hell. And I know there's so many people who are like trading right now. They are literally trading. They're like, well, I want this door open. And so Jesus, I don't care about that door to heaven. And I don't care about that door to love and the grace and the mercy that you offer and forgiveness because I want this door open. Because this door, and this is what people walk through like a million doors in their life because they don't, instead of Christianity, they're like, well, if I just open the door to wealth, then maybe this one will satisfy me. And then they get through the door and it's like, I'm not satisfied still. And then they go through an, uh, the door of relationships with humans and they're like, well, these doors are not satisfying me. And they go through the door of addiction, whatever the addiction might be, and they don't know they're walking into that door, but it's drugs or it's sex or it's whatever it might be. And then, and then through that door, they're, they're like, this is not satisfying. And all the while, Jesus is like, look, all you got to do is accept me and I will fling the doors to happiness and joy and peace and love and acceptance and forgiveness and eternity and perfection wide open. The churches, the other churches besides the church in Philadelphia are like, oh, that door slammed. Maybe I can just crack it open a little bit and Jesus will still be happy with me. And Jesus is like, who cares if the door is closed? Because... My door is open to you. We usually close that door right over there, but I went to close it today. This is a true story. You can look at it afterwards. And, and tied to it, keeping it open, is a little uh, like uh, caution tape, but it doesn't say caution. It says danger. And so I didn't know if I should shut the door or not because it might explode or something. Uh, but, but the truth is, there is only one door that is ultimately dangerous to close, and that door is, is the door that is a relationship with Jesus and all that he offers. It's the only door that's dangerous to close. It does not matter if these human relationship doors close. It does not matter if the door to wealth closes. It does not matter if the door to, to being able to do something matters. The only door that matters to shut is, is the door to Jesus. And even us as Christians spend so much of our lives 
just trying to keep open all these other doors and forgetting all about Jesus. And he's like, hey, I've placed before you a door that cannot be closed. Access to me and to all that I offer. And so why are you worried about all the other doors? He looks at this church and he says, I know that you have a little bit of strength. The word strength there means natural capability or inherent power, the Greek word does. Capability of anything, ability to perform anything. It's not merely power, but it's capable action. And he looks at this church and he's like, I know that you don't have a lot of natural ability. And I think like, as Christians and as churches in America today, we think like I would really, really serve Jesus and I would be so much less focused on these other doors if only I just had a little bit more of whatever is through that door. I mean, if I didn't lack money, then that money door, I would, I would live for Jesus in the area of money. I would really, really be focused on him in my financial life if I just had a little bit more of what was through that door. If people liked me just a little bit more, I mean, if, if whatever's through that, I'm liked and respected, or if I just had a little bit more of that, then I wouldn't have to, you know, kind of compromise my faith in Jesus in order to be liked more. If, I, if my life was just a little bit more fun and I had kind of that fun door just a little bit more, then, then I could just, you know, I wouldn't have to do these things that I know are disobedient to Jesus because I would have a little bit more fun in my life. And we, we spend our time saying if, I, if we just had a little bit more power, just a little bit more strength, then, then we would do the things that Jesus has called us to do. You know, I think about our church, and last week I had this call to wake up and remember the mission of Jesus, and that is to lead every person to him and to lead every person to a place where they are fully obedient to him. And we're going to, this next year, is we are going to push this waking up idea, and we're going to just encourage and compel and convict and whatever we have to do to get you to, to awaken and, and to be on this mission. And here will be our excuses when we're going through this next year. It'll be easy for us to go, well, if our church just had a little bit more money, then we could accomplish something great. If our church just had a little bit more creativity, then we could accomplish something great. If our church just had a little bit more uh, leadership, then we could accomplish something great. If we had a building, then we could accomplish something great. If we just had a few more people, then we could accomplish something great. Then we could really live for Jesus. Jesus is saying, come on, I opened up the door to access to me, and so you got to live for me, and you got to do your best to be on this mission, and it doesn't matter what you lack. I know about your lack of strength. I mean, look at this church, like, you have a little bit of strength. I mean, it's good Jesus knows. It's the harshest thing he says to him, I don't want anybody to say that to me. I know many of you would. Like, Chad, you're so not strong. You know, but, but like, he's like, I know about it. But still, don't worry about all the other doors. Worry about me and my mission and serving me and living for me and doing my will and how you have wonderful access to me and to everything that I 
offer. You see, for these people, they didn't have a lot of strength. They weren't mighty, but they had kept his word and they had not denied his name. And that is not something that the other churches could say. They'd been disobedient to his word. They had compromised his word. They had tainted his word, but they had not kept his word. And they had denied his name at points. Many people throughout the history of Christianity have denied the name of Jesus because they didn't want the door to their lives to close or the door to something else. But these people seemingly got it. The most important door is open to us and Jesus reminds them of it. And then he continues in Revelation 3, 9 and 10. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I want to stop there for a second. Synagogue of Satan is a reference probably to the Jewish leaders of the time. And we need to be very clear about something. That phrase right there has been used in the history of the world for anti-Semitism. It has been used to impart and to push forward and to encourage racism against Jewish people. The problem is definitely not that they're Jewish considering some of the people, maybe a majority of the people in the church of Philadelphia were probably also Jewish. The problem is they are leaders of the Jewish faith who are doing what they need to do to persecute Christians. And the real key is that Jesus says they are not actually Jews. You see the Jewish people were not the continuation of the Jewish faith. They were the ones taking the left turn that I talked about earlier. They were the ones who were departing from what they had always believed because they were rejecting Jesus. You know, it's a problem I actually think still in our modern thinking when we think about religion. and We think like, well, the Christian faith is about 2,000 years old. But the Jewish faith is like at least five to 6,000 years old. But the reality is, the Christian faith was simply the continuation of the Jewish faith that began five to 6,000 years ago. And what we call Judaism today, the Jewish faith, was the left turn away from what God had always predicted and always believed and always written down for them in the Old Testament. It's a really important thing to remember. Because if my religion is 2,000 years old and it's a right turn off of what has always been said and God had always talked about, if we just came out of nowhere, then I worry about that a little bit. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. These people have missed the boat. I was predicted for thousands of years. I came and they rejected me. You are the real faith, the true faith. And here's the other part, and I love this, because he's like, I will make them fall down at your feet And acknowledge, and here's what I expect. I totally expect him to say, I will make them acknowledge that you were right and they were wrong. That kind of what is like would fit best there. Like I'm going to bring them to your feet. They're going to fall down in front of you. And then they're going to declare you were right. We were wrong. Oops. You know, I mean, that's what you expect. But notice what he says. And I love this because it just sums up Jesus and everything about him. I will make them fall down and acknowledge that I have loved you. You see, the key, the trick of it all, of what we call Christianity, is that Jesus loves us. And the world looks down and says, great teacher lived 2,000 years ago. He was kind of hippie-ish. Nice guy. 
But what Christianity says is, no, 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 no. Jesus died because he loved me so much. And he loved every person so much. He died so that they could have their sins removed. And then he rose again three days later and he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, but he still loves me. He didn't just love some people 2,000 years ago when he walked around on earth. He still loves people today because he reigns from heaven above. See, if you look at Jesus as just a man, if you look at Jesus as a nice guy, if you look at Jesus as a false prophet, if you even just look at him as a good prophet, then you don't see a Jesus who still today loves you intimately. If Jesus died, and he's gone, he's buried, he's in a grave somewhere, then he doesn't love Chad today. He's just dead. But Jesus, if this is it, where they have it wrong is that they looked at Jesus and they thought he was a false teacher or they thought he was whatever. But the truth is, Jesus is the one who loves us completely and utterly, who died for the sins of the world. And then he says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, which means to live out the faith even when it's hard, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. We don't know exactly what that is, but it seems like Roman persecution came in a very strong way. The Romans were attacked, and maybe this church in Philadelphia was immune from it, at least for a time. And we do know that this church that Jesus is writing to lasted for 1,200 years. And that the church ended because the the people, the Muslim people in Turkey literally slaughtered them to death in the church building. This church went 1,200 years surviving earthquakes, surviving persecution, and surviving really a land that didn't all together believe what they believed. And so Jesus' prophecy in some ways comes true, although we don't know exactly what he's referring to here. And he continues. He continues. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. This is what he said throughout this passage. Continue to live for me because in me is victory. The victor's wreath, as we talked about a few weeks ago, in me is ultimate victory. And he continues, he says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So look, I'll put the name on a pillar, and pillars were common for archaeology in Philadelphia and all of Asia Minor, and the people would have expected pillars in the new temple of God, the new Jerusalem, and, and we see this wrong. We see that sometimes that we'll spend eternity in heaven, but what the Bible says is that heaven will actually come down to earth, and what we know as earth will be totally wiped away and made clean, and then God will come down, and he'll create a new city and a new earth that we will live in for eternity. If you want to picture what heaven's like, picture earth but perfect, without pain, without sorrow, without suffering, without any difficulties or worries or struggles or fears or all of those things that get in the way of us just enjoying the beauty of the mountains and the fun that we like to have. That's the best picture of heaven that I can give you. And Jesus says, look, I will come down and you will be a part of it and you will know me even more intimately than you know me now. And he finishes... Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I simply want to say two things today. 
For those of you who aren't Christians, I want to say, look, the biggest reason that you're probably not a Christian is because you care more about a bunch of doors that ultimately will not matter. I mean, it's the biggest reason. Well, these smart people will think that I'm less educated or I might lose this friend because I won't be able to do this thing or I won't be able to cheat at work and do things that, you know, Christians find unethical and I'll make less money. When you die, those things will not matter at all. The only thing that will matter is that the door to Jesus is still wide open for you. And that door is only open to those who look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross for me so that my sins, all the wrong things that I've done can be taken away, can be forgiven, can be paid for by you. And I give you my life because I believe that to be true. When you do that, the only door that ever will matter becomes wide open to you. And if you're a Christian, if you're already a Christian, you're like, yeah, I do believe that. I'll tell you this, if you wake up, which we will talk about a lot in the next, if you come awake and say, I'm gonna be on a mission, I'm gonna be on fire for Jesus, I'm gonna be trying to do my best to lead people to him and to be obedient to him and to help other people be obedient to him and to to be in Christian relationships that matter and and push people forward spiritually, I'm telling you, doors will be closed to you. They'll be closed to you. And you have to make a decision to say, the only door I really care about is the door to Jesus. I had this, I've told this story before, but it's a story that really impacted me. I had a a missiology study of missions professor and Dr. Bob Wright down at Corbin University. And and I loved the class because he just told stories and he'd tell some of them five times. He was a little bit older, uh, still is older, I guess. And, uh, uh, And he told wonderful stories. And he was a missionary in Brazil for a long time. And he had incredible, incredible things to say about his time. Like not just in Brazil, but like in the jungle in Brazil with um, some indigenous tribe down there. And he said when he was first going, and he was telling people, I'm going to be a missionary, I'm leaving. They would look at him and they would say, I could just never leave my family. And no, Dr. Wright said, you know, I never, I don't I think he said he didn't say it, but I would always think in my head, yes, because I hate my family. And he made a great point that stuck with me. He didn't go be a missionary because because he didn't have other doors that maybe he thought were good or wanted to walk through because there were no other options in his life. He chose to be a missionary because he looked at the door that is Jesus and said, I want other people to be able to walk through this door. And he was willing to have the door to family get-togethers closed in his face because he was willing to travel thousands of miles to go tell other people that Jesus has opened the door to God. And if you're a Christian and you become passionate about serving Jesus, Doors will close. And the question is not, did I want that door to be open to me? I want the door to lots and lots of money to stay open to me. But it's pretty well been closed at this point because I decided to pastor here. (laughs) And I decided to pastor here because I know there's a greater door. It's a greater door. And it's the door to Jesus, and I believe that this church is the place for me to be to tell people about it and to help people be focused on that door and not trying to walk through a bunch of other doors that don't really matter. 
And so it's not about you and how much you like a different door. It's simply about knowing Jesus' door is the most important one. I'm telling you, if we become a church, a group of people who say, you can slam every door in my face, every single door, except for the ultimate door, access to God, then we will be a church that changes the world. We might be a church that in 2,000 years, every other church is trying to emulate and be like, because we said it's not about, it's not about all of these things that we hold so highly. It is about serving Jesus without question, without doubt, without compromise. It's about being on his mission even when it costs us everything else. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would be a group of people, the people here today that, that, are, that are really, God, only focused on keeping one door open and that is the door that is too dangerous to close that is the door between you and us, between eternity and heaven and between, between our lives now, God. And so I just, I just would pray, God, that you this morning would change the perspective of people here who sit in front of me, God, and you would change their perspective to a place, God, where, where they realize that, that the other doors don't lead to any, any real satisfa- satisfaction, any real joy. They don't re- lead to any true glory or anything else that really matters. They just are all dead ends, God. They lead to empty rooms, but your door, God... It leads to you, and it leads to riches, and it leads to treasures. Pray that you would speak that into people's hearts today. You know, while you guys have your eyes closed, I just want to ask this morning, because I want the opportunity to pray for you more individually. If today you want to make a decision to go through the door that is access to God, that is a relationship with Jesus and all that it offers, Can you just put your hand up for me? Thank you. Lord, I pray for these hands that went up. I thank you, God, for the way that you moved in their hearts through this teaching. And I just pray, God, that, you know, when they when they see the world put their hand on that doorknob and they can see that it's about to get slammed in their face, which hurts sometimes, Lord, they would take their eyes off of that door and just always keep it on yours. The gate to heaven, the gate to eternity. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Pray these things in your name. Amen.